You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. The uh, Hebrew scholars simply call it the binding uh, because of the binding of Isaac. Uh, it's, uh, it's really hard to even visualize this, uh, especially if you're a parent and you have a, a, a son, really a daughter also, but um, it's just so vivid. Uh, the way the narrator tells it, the details the narrator uses uh, make it very vivid. Uh, so you have to imagine, you have to use your imagination and if you don't know the backstory, uh, it makes it even more difficult. Imagine that you have waited uh, 25 years for this child that you, you were told by God was definitely coming. And not only that, this child was going to change the entire world. This would be the, the, the tip of the spear of this kingdom that was going to come and it was going to remake the entire world. So through this child, this amazing kingdom would come and it would spread blessing across the whole world. And you have waited 25 years and there were so many setbacks. There were so many times where you thought there's no way this is going to happen. So many times where you kind of lost your nerve and gave up on the plan. Um, There was infertility. Uh, But then this mighty miracle occurs. And we didn't didn't actually look at the the passage where it does occur. But uh, this miracle occurs. The child is born. There's a heartbeat. It's a healthy birth. The promised child. The answer to so many prayers And now about 13 years is probably the age of the son based on the word boy in Hebrew that is used in this passage. So now 13 years later, uh, here's the child and verse two says, God spoke to Abraham and said, take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So this is a, this is a disturbing, uh, gut-wrenching story. Almost seems cruel. But I want to look at how it reveals two things. Number one, it reveals the faith of Abraham. Uh, and number two, it reveals the faithfulness of God. Um, so the faith of Abraham first. And then the faithfulness of his God second. So first of all, I want you to know that God is very aware of the pain that Abraham is experiencing in this story. In verse 2... God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love. Very clear that that God is making note of the fact that he knows how deeply Abraham loves this child. Your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love. Four times he's saying, I know I'm seeing the pain in your heart. I am not being flippant about this. I'm watching every detail of this. I know I'm asking a lot of you. 
And you see in verse three that Abraham is up all night. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been up all night with anxiety, you just can't sleep. As soon as Abraham tried to close his eyes, his, this, just his heart is pounding. His, his thought, these intrusive thoughts are just rushing through his mind. There's no way he can sleep. So it says in verse three, he, he rose early in the morning. It's very early in the morning, maybe like 4 a.m. Can't sleep anyway. Gets up, gets two of the, his servants, his son Isaac. Um, verse three, he's, you can see him blowing his hands, you know, and breathing hard. It's cold early in the morning. And so he says he's chopping wood. So he cut the wood, the wood on which he would light the fire that would eventually burn his son. So imagine verse six, where it says he took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. That's so that his Isaac, his son could bring that wood up the mountain. So Isaac doesn't know what's going on. He just knows that his dad has brought him this wood that he's chopped. They've traveled three days. They're at Mount Moriah now, and he's taking wood up this mountain. And then in verse nine, it says that he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar. So an altar like this table right here, maybe a stone altar. And uh, he had wood underneath it. And he was tying his son Isaac with ropes. Um, he bound him to that, that altar. And again, all these details are significant. God is saying, I am not asking this of you lightly. I am very aware of how incredibly difficult but what's amazing is that Abraham is going through this. He keeps going through this. He's walking through the pain. There are times I've been in so much pain that it was really literally hard. When I, find out, I found out my wife had cancer and it was bad, found it was bad, uh, walking up a certain hill in downtown Atlanta was very hard. It was like I was walking through mud. And I can imagine Abraham, not only is this a steep hill to Mount Moriah, but the pain of it, he can barely move his legs. But this is his, really his greatest moment as a human being in terms of, this is what a human being is supposed to look like. A, a person who trusts their God this much that they would go through with this, that they, would, that they would obey God, that they would do what God said, even though he has no idea what's gonna happen. It says in verse one that all this was God testing Abraham. And that's one of that and, and verse 12 are probably the key verses in this passage. If you don't know what's going on, you've gotta know about those two verses. They book in the passage. And it says in verse one, he tested Abraham. And then in verse 12, now I know that you fear me because you've done this. So clearly this whole thing is a test. And it's not like a standardized test, like the MCAT or the LSAT or the SAT. It's not a pass fail. It's not like God is saying, um, if you pass this test to Abraham, then I will make you the father of many nations. Because he's already told Abraham he's going to make him the father of many nations. So it's not that kind of test. This is like the testing of Job or the testing of a metal where you strike a metal to see if it's really gold. And if you strike that metal and it doesn't cut through it, it's gold. And so what, what God is doing here is he is saying, I want to show you, Abraham, how far you've come with me and how much you trust me. Now, not just you, I wanna show the entire world how much you love me and how much faith you have in me. The same way that he did with Job. And so after all of the failures to believe, you know, you had Pharaoh the first time. Remember when he tries to act like Sarah's his sister to avoid uh, being killed? And then you've got Eleazar where Abraham tried to act like Eleazar would be the one through whom the, the promise would come, his servant. And then he, um, 
He tries this whole thing with Hagar, uh, his maidservant, where he thinks if he sleeps with her, she might bear the child, the, the promised child. And then it happens again, just in the last chapter, with Abimelech, another king, where Abraham essentially, to preserve his own life, uh, acts like Sarah is his sister and gives Sarah into the harem of King Abimelech. So anyward, all of these failures, one after another, all these years of walking with God, and now in verse 12, it says, now I know. God says, now I know that you trust me, that you fear me because you have not withheld your son. The thing in your life that matters almost more to you than anything else, you have, you have opened up your hands and offered him to me. And you're not clinging to your life. You're not trying to control your life anymore. You're not in charge anymore. You're letting me be in charge. And the word fear is really important. It's basically saying you revere me, you, you reverence me, you're in awe of me, that I am more weighty to you than anything in your life. God has become more uh, weighty to Abraham, more massive in the mind of Abraham than anything else in Abraham's life. So think about this relationship building between God and Abraham and the way that over time, and hopefully this is true of you and God as well, uh, instead of any other person or any other factor in your life becoming the main decision-making factor, it's God. It's, it's not your parents, it's not your spouse, it's not your children, it's not your boss, it's God. I remember when I was first dating my wife, um, I started to notice that uh, she was actually exerting more um, of, a, of an influence on me than my parents. And I remember that very vividly, realizing I was beginning to trust her and be moved by her opinion more than even my parents, my background, my family of origin. And uh, that was very telling to me, that I was shifting my center of gravity or the, my weight was being shifted onto her. And that's what's happened here with with Abraham, God has become completely the center of his life. It is God who he trusts more than anything, more than any other voice in his head, he trusts the word of God. God has come and told him to do this thing and he's going to do this thing no matter what. And so I think the question for us with our faith, and you know, some of you have barely been walking with God for a year. And some of you maybe are not at all, don't even know what I'm talking about right now, this relationship with God, this personal relationship with God. I mean, I've been, I've been in a relationship with God since uh, 1992. So I've been walking with him for a long time and I'm still learning to shift my weight onto him. But just imagine that God exerts more influence to you truly in a decision you're making about you know, your money or something very important or where you're gonna live next. Think about God exerting more weight than anyone else in your life. If that was the number one factor, and imagine being willing to give up something that is very important to you. You know, it could be, I mean, this sounds trivial, but social media, it could be that. I've known people that have given up social media, even for a month, and they've said that it was kind of life-changing to do so. But that's a very important part of a lot of people's lives. And imagine just holding that loosely before God and saying, God, I'm gonna let you exert uh, more influence in my life than all of these voices, all these images that I see on social media. You know, imagine, uh, giving up something that you really, really love. Maybe it's even certain drinks or certain foods. And so now I'm gonna let you, God, exert more influence on my life than these other things are exerting. Um, you know, maybe it's something that means almost more to you than anything. Maybe it's a relationship. I've, I've known someone uh, recently that, that broke up with their, their boyfriend because they just realized this is not, a, in terms of my, my relationship with God, 
Uh, this, this relationship with my boyfriend is not helping me in that at all. It's, it's actually detracting from my relationship with God. And so she broke up with him. That was, that was, it was a deeply painful decision for her to do that. And yet she said, God means more to me than that. Heard about another story where somebody felt like their boss was telling them that they had to do something that was uh, unconscionable, that did not sit well with their conscience. And so they, they gave up their job. They told their boss, I can't do that thing because God means more to me. And so fearing God is like God becoming more massive to you, uh, more weighty to you. It's kind of like if, you were walk, if you're used to walking on the moon, you know, if you've seen people on the moon, the moon does not, is, not, is not nearly as massive as the earth. So if you're walking on the moon, it doesn't exert that much of an influence on you. So you can kind of you know, go up and down very, you know, it's like you've seen the astronauts on the moon. Well, if you come to earth, it's a much more massive planet. And so you're kind of grounded by the earth. Or imagine something even heavier than the earth, like another planet heavier than the earth. And it would just pull you down. It would exert so much influence on you, so much force on you. And that's what's going on here, is the, the gravitational pull of Abraham's life is now all about God. It's God first, and, and everything else is second. And I think you see that in the way that, that Isaac actually, the way that Isaac responds to all this is quite amazing. It says in verse 6, he's just silently carrying the wood on his back up this hill. He doesn't ask any questions. And then I love this question in verse 7. My father, behold, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Again, so innocently, trustingly asking his father, assuming the best, knowing that his father has a plan, knowing there's a way out of this. And then in verse 9, it says that he bound Isaac on the altar, and Isaac was probably stronger than his 100-year-old dad. And yet Isaac submits to it. He lets this happen to him. He knows there's some way out of this. And we hear in the book of Hebrews that Abraham knew there was some way out of this. He knew that he was not going to lose his son forever because he knew that God had promised him that through Isaac, the kingdom was going to come. And it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, that he thought God would raise Isaac from the dead if he had to. He didn't know how God was going to save Isaac, but he knew that he was in God's hands until he trusted and I love one definition of faith that this uh, commentator, Derek Kidner, gives. Based on this story, he says it's complete certainty in God, but complete openness as to the details. So Abraham's completely certain that God will rescue him. He has no idea how. No, no idea about the details at all. And maybe you're facing something in your life where you're asked to trust God. He's telling you to do something, and you don't know how in the world he's going to accomplish that. And you just have to keep trusting him. That's what Abraham does. James 2.21 says that Abraham proved that he had faith when he offered Isaac on the altar. That's the way that, that's where the, uh, the James, the apostle, describes it. That that moment proved that he had faith. It didn't create the faith, but it proved to, it proved to the world this man believes because God is more important to him than anything else in his life. So that's number one. The faith of Abraham. Now, number two, the faithfulness of God. How does this demonstrate the faithfulness of God? You know, the thing that I would say when I first heard about this story as a non-Christian um, was this is, this is the opposite of a faithful God, right? This is a cruel, tyrannical God uh, that would ask someone that he loves so much to sacrifice their son that he knows loves 
so much, that Abraham loves his son so much, and yet God is asking him to do this. So how do you deal with this child sacrifice? Verse 2, offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Notice that Abraham does not flinch, that to him, this was absolutely uh, common sense. This was, you know, just the way they do things back then. So in the ancient world, and even in a lot of cultures today, uh, child sacrifice is something that is practiced. And the idea is they believed that um, they were guilty, that they deserved judgment, that the gods need to be appeased, and so some sacrifice had to be made um, to get the favor of the gods upon you. And you know, today we look at that and we say they're crazy, uh, that is uh, primitive, um, that is beneath the dignity of a human being to do that. But I think there's a lot of wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that child sacrifice is correct, but there are things that these cultures know that we don't know. Uh, namely, that we are guilty before God, that uh, there, there, some sacrifice does need to be made, um, and, and that there is judgment that is coming. And so Abraham knew, he was very aware, as all cultures were in his day, uh, that he had disobeyed God so many times, that he had been unfaithful to God so many times, that he was disloyal to God so many times, that he actually deserved uh, for God to have his firstborn. That that was very appropriate, that God would... So it was, it was not shocking at all that Abraham had to give up Isaac. What was shocking is that God did not ultimately require it of him. So if you were someone in the ancient world hearing this story, the shocking thing was not that Abraham had to give up his son Isaac, but that God actually ended up not having to take that life. That's what was so shocking about this story. In verse 8, it says that God himself will provide the lamb. That God himself would be the one that would make the sacrifice. In some mysterious way, Abraham knew that God was going to be the one that gave up his own firstborn. That God would do this. Right when things look most bleak in the story, right when the knife is poised over the head of Isaac, Verse 10, notice how the, the action slows down and the camera gets focused in on the hand. It says he reached out his hand, he took the knife, he raised it up, he, he raised it over Isaac's head to slaughter his son. Very vivid. A powerful depiction of this moment. And so right when the camera's on the knife, focus on the knife, this mysterious angel of the Lord shows up, the angel of the Lord, kind of the, the incarnation of God, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, you know, do not lay a hand on your child. Now I know. Now I know how much you love me. And then there is a sacrifice. Verse 13. It's not like God says, I don't need a sacrifice. It says, behold, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So God is not saying, you know, don't worry about that sacrifice stuff. Uh, just keep, in, keep working on yourself. Keep improving. And I don't require stuff like that. No, God is saying, I do demand a sacrifice. In fact, I demand a sacrifice greater than even your son. But I'm not going to make you pay. I'm going, to, I'm going to provide the sacrifice, God is saying. And this is what makes God so revolutionary in the culture of the time, is that not that he requires a sacrifice, but that he gives the sacrifice. Verse 13, he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And that instead of, or in the place of, that's right at the heart of Christianity. If you're not sure what Christianity is about, um, if you're very unfamiliar with the church, that one phrase kind of sums it up. 
in our place or instead of his son. That the whole idea of Christianity is a substitution that God puts his son in our place and he offers the sacrifice of his firstborn. That's why in verse 14 it says that Abraham called it the Lord will provide. The Lord is the one that will provide. So right when Abraham most thinks that God has abandoned him, right when that knife is poised over the head of his son, God is actually there and there's a ram caught in the thicket right there. When, when, when God seems most absent, he's actually most present. And I thought about this time in my life where I was lost at the Haynes Mall. I don't know if you were ever lost at the mall as a child, but I was lost at the Haynes Mall. And, um, and I was thinking, you know, my, my mom had abandoned me. I thought she just wandered away and didn't care about me. And, uh, and nobody knew where I was there. I was probably like six or something like that. And so to me, it felt like the world was ending. I was terrified. Uh, but little did I know that my mom was actually in the cookie factory, which is still there in the mall. And not only was she getting me a cookie because she knows I love them, but she was getting me like this very special kind uh, with the icing in the middle and the little smile painted on the top of it. And so right when I was thinking I was completely abandoned, she was looking at me knowing that she was going to be giving me this gift. And right when we think that God is most absent is often where he's right there, providing this incredible gift. He is faithful to us. All the gods of the nations demanded that their worshipers sacrifice their firstborn, but Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he offers his own firstborn. That's what makes God so great. Verse two, his son, his only son, Jesus, who he loved. This is where John 3.16 comes from. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his son, his only son, who he loved, that whoever believed in him would have eternal life and would never perish. And that's what we see in this meal, this great substitution where God gives us his son's very life. In this meal, we are receiving the life of Christ. And even as we receive the life of Christ, all of our death and all of our judgment and all of our guilt is being thrown onto him. And so this is the essence of what we believe as Christians, is that we take the body and the blood of Christ into ourselves. And even as we are receiving all of his goodness, we are laying on him all of our sin and all of our guilt. And so as we come to this meal, I always like to say that uh, if you're not familiar uh, with the Lord's Supper, um, if you don't know what's going on here, you know, I was in that same position one time in my life and I did not know what to do. And I would just encourage you, uh, be, be true to your convictions and don't feel any pressure to come up here if you're not ready to do that. I mean, nobody's going to notice, right? It's a big field of people. So if you don't want to come up here, that's completely fine. But at the same time, know that no one comes up here because we think we're better than anyone. It's just the opposite. We're coming up here to say we are guilty and we need help. We're like beggars looking for bread. And so we put out our hands. We put out our hands in this, this posture of, of supplication and need. It's a meal of need where we're saying, I desperately need Christ.